Acts 20 and the verses 22 through 25. Hear the word of God. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we go through, uh, we don't want to miss out any aspect of uh, the blessings that you have for us from the book of Acts. We pray that uh, you would open the eyes of our understanding, help us to apply it. Please, Lord, spare us from uh, outward conformity but lacking transformation within. Uh, Spare us from uh, hearing and yet not hearing spiritually. Uh, Spare us, Lord, from uh, a Phariseeism that is content with appearances uh, but lacks the the inward uh, ministration of your Spirit. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, transform us, and uh, make uh, us to drink so fully of your grace that out of our innermost being would flow rivers of living water. We love you. And we continue to worship as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there are quite a number of places in the Bible where God calls us to count the cost of discipleship. And I'm going to start by reading one from Luke 14. Christ said, which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first And consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus was saying in context that there were some people who have decided to follow him But he knows that when trials and tribulations come, they're just going to forsake him. They're not going to continue. And so what Jesus does over and over is he almost like chases people away by telling them what the cost of Christianity really is. And in this uh, verse 28, he says, sit down first and count the cost. So that's what the sermon is all about this morning. How do we count the cost and how do we help our children to count the cost that's involved in Christianity. Now, I did have a friend who joked with me one time, and he said, you know, if parents really counted the cost of having children, they wouldn't have any. Uh, or they might only have one uh, child. And he says, sure, it's a gift uh, from God, but it's a pretty expensive gift because by the time you add up the 18, 20 years that they're living with you, it's over $100,000 per child. And he says, you count the, um, you know, the diapers and the braces that the kids have to have and uh, all of the presents, the birthday presents, Christmas presents, the, the you know the dented side of your car when they ran the bike into it, and uh, the increased insurance at age 16, and 
Uh, they just went on, big long list. He says, it's likely much more than $100,000, and yet parents still have kids, don't they? Now, it may be that he's correct that uh, some of these parents, uh, they didn't count the cost. Maybe it was an accident, or they just didn't realize how expensive it would be. But I don't think that's the case with most of us. Most of us have counted the cost, and we say it's worth it. You know, uh, having children is worth far more than the money that we would have otherwise uh, had. And that gives us a hint as to what this first point is all about. Point one says, let the right things bind your spirit. Look at verse 22. He says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. He was bound in his spirit by something. Now, there is controversy as to whether that word spirit should be uh, a capital S or a small uh, S. Uh, New King James has it that it's Paul's spirit that is being bound here. Uh, ESV has a capital S spirit. In other words, God's spirit that's binding Paul. It really doesn't matter which way you translate it. It still comes to the same conclusion because it's God and His purposes that are binding Paul, the real person, which would be His spirit. I think it should be a capital S here. But either way you translate it, you still come to the same uh, conclusion that Paul felt a holy compulsion from God to go to Jerusalem. He knew it was a huge risk. But Paul was more captivated by God's definition of greatness than he was by man's definition of greatness. Uh, He was much more captivated uh, with a desire to please God than a desire to please his own flesh. And his heart was bound by a desire to make his life count much more than a desire to make his life long. And so he was bound by the right things. When you have children, I think you're being bound by the right things. You know the cost in terms of finances and time and emotions and energy and lost uh, sleep at nights and things like that. And yet you do it with joy uh, because uh, raising these children to God's glory is something that has already, God has transformed you. He's captivated your heart with that. It's much more important to you than having an extra 20 hours a week to watch football. Not that watching football is bad, right? Uh, we're probably going to watch some football on New Year's Day, I'm not sure, but... Uh, uh, it's not an issue of bad versus good. It's an issue of seeing the cost and yet being driven by God's values and priorities so much that it all seems worthwhile, even the good things that are costing you. Why do elders put so much time into eldering? It's because their spirits are bound by something that a lot of people are not bound by. Why do fathers spend so much time shepherding their families in this church? Well, I believe in part it's because they're bound by values to such a degree, the values of God, that they are, uh, they are burdened by things that for other people would say, you know, that's really not important to me. But for them, it's really important and it brings them joy in doing it. Uh, why do volunteers in our church uh, spend, you know, sometimes some difficult energies in setup crew and music team and PHF and other things like that? I think because they realize this point that the costs are worth while in terms of God's overall kingdom. Why do I beat up my body going on mission trips? Well, I can guarantee you it's not because I enjoy uh, the brutal travel or the sleepless nights. It's because I am bound by the will of God and God's will brings me joy. God's will is always uh, something that is totally compatible with joy and liberty. So you can be bound. You can also have joy. It's kind of a, a paradox. 
Now, I should hasten to say that just because Paul is bound by God's purposes and just because he has joy in his spirit does not mean that Paul does not have a, a little bit of a sense of foreboding and as he's anticipating this suffering in Jerusalem. There is some apprehension. He's not a superman. He's already told us in 2 Corinthians, uh, that which was written before this, he's had some fear and trembling. Uh, let me read you a passage from Romans 15 uh, that describes some of Paul's apprehension. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. He prays that he might be delivered from death because he really doesn't know if he's going to escape alive out of Jerusalem. Uh, He's a normal guy like you and I are. He's not suicidal. He's not one who enjoys suffering. And so I get from that that the cost is not an illusion. It truly is a cost, just as having children is a cost, but because of the joy that is set before us, we're able to lay hold of that cost, no problem. What football player does not have cost? He's got costs of bruises, sometimes broken legs, uh, definitely lost time and sleep and fatigue and things like that. But it's worth it to him. He's counted the cost and so had Paul. Uh, Some people have tried to psychoanalyze Paul, uh, trying to figure out why didn't he just send this money along with somebody else? Why is he so bent on going to Jerusalem uh, with these finances? I read one article that said, Paul has felt so guilty for so long over all of the people that he had killed when he was persecuting the church, all of the widows he had made and all of the orphans that he had made, that he's just really wanting to serve widows and orphans. And so he's driven by guilt. Uh, This is payback time. He's wanting to get to the Jerusalem. I don't buy that at all. Not in the least. His conscience was cleansed. He was free. He did not have any sense of guilt that was driving him. In fact, in Acts chapter 24, I think it's verse 16, uh, he indicates that um, he had a conscience. And this is what he always strove for. He had a conscience that was completely free of offense toward man and toward God. So I don't think guilt is the answer at all. I believe that Paul was bound by the pleasure of doing God's will, and it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem. When you're bound by the right things, you can count the cost of being a godly Christian and do it with great joy. By the way, guilt is a lousy motivator. It'll eventually let you down. It's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Guilt does not give you strength. Joy does. Carl F. Henry said, unfortunately, most Christians can't count the cost because their souls are bound by lesser things. I don't say enjoying lesser things. It's okay to enjoy lesser things, but he says they're bound by lesser things. And he said this, the soul of modern man has been sucked dry by temporary concerns that eclipse the eternal world. So if you get this first point right, you're well on your way to being able to count the cost of anything God might throw at you and to be able to do it with joy. Now very quickly, let's go point two. There was a second thing that helped Paul count the cost. And if you look at the second part of verse 22, you'll see it. It says, not knowing the things that will happen to me. He was not paralyzed by lack of information. Instead, he was driven by what he already did know. 
There was a lot about the future he didn't know. In fact, the passage I just read from Romans 15, he was asking the Romans to pray for deliverance from the Jews. Why? Because he doesn't know if he's going to make it out of Jerusalem. Uh, he prays that, he asked them to pray that he would not die there because he thinks that might be a possibility. I'll die in Jerusalem. He asks the Romans to pray that, that they would find his gift acceptable because he's not quite sure what their attitudes toward him will be. Uh, he asked them to pray that he would eventually come to Rome, indicating he didn't really know if he's going to get there. Now, in terms of his planning, it was an imperative that he get to Jerusalem. He, he says, I must get to Jerusalem, but uh, he really doesn't know if he will achieve it. He had said that he had often planned to go to Rome, but was hindered until now. Romans 1, verse 13. So there's a lot about the future he does not know. Verse 22 again, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Now, for many people, I'd be a deal killer. You know, if you don't know about the future, you're just too worried to plunge into uh, the future. Uh, how would you respond uh, if you didn't know you were going to get out of Jerusalem alive? Would you go there? Well, maybe if you really knew that God wanted you to go to Jerusalem. And I think that's a, a key to counting the cost. Some people are so driven by fears of the unknown that they don't take action. The unknown has made them paralyzed. Now, if you know God has called you to do something, even if there's tons of things about it that are unknown, you ought to obey. God many times won't give additional information until after you've taken some steps of action. And so, here's the, here's the summary of this point. It uh, doesn't mean you can't seek further knowledge. You, you certainly can. But part of the Counting the cost is being willing to obey even with limited knowledge. Notice I didn't say, you know, being apathetic and failing to try to gain knowledge. Uh, we can always try to gain knowledge, but part of counting the cost is being willing to obey with limited knowledge. It's a trust issue. We can trust that God has perfect wisdom and He knows the future. Third thing we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit Himself often sends challenges to our faith into our lives. Sometimes it feels as if our faith is being challenged just as much as Abraham's was when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. This seemed like a total contradiction. If I sacrifice Isaac, how is God promises that He's going to raise up you know, tons of people, more than the stars of heaven, through Isaac going to come to be fulfilled? Hebrews tells us he was so convinced God had to follow through that if, if, if Isaac was sacrificed, he'd be raised from the dead. That's what Hebrews uh, tells us. So a faith challenge is anything that tests our willingness to follow God's will, no matter what the consequences. And when these faith tests start coming into our lives, what a lot of times happens is we begin to second-guess ourselves. Did I really hear from the Lord right? You know, should I be continuing to do the things that I always believed God has called me to do? Uh, a faith challenge may be something like this, where a, a wife questions whether the Lord really it's His will for her to continue to remain married when things get tough, or for a minister of the gospel. Have I really been called to the ministry when things get tough for Him? Now, some people call these actually word checks because they're testing the capacity of a person to uh, follow God's Word. Now, take a look at verse 23. Paul said he didn't know a lot about the future, but he does qualify in verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. 
That could be pretty discouraging to have the Spirit over and over again reminding you, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, there's chains and tribulations that are going to await you. Uh, let me read you one particular occasion where this happens so you can get a little bit of a feel for how it would be so easy for Paul to say, well, maybe I shouldn't go to Jerusalem after all. Take a look at chapter 21, and uh, we're going to begin reading at verse 10. <clears throat> And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die, Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Now, I want you to notice some things about that passage. First of all, this was a thus saith the Lord prophecy. This was God Himself speaking to Paul. Second, notice that this is exactly the same message that chapter 20 has uh, said has been given to Paul every city he's been going into, everywhere he's gone. And so Luke, by inspiration, says this was truly from the Spirit. Agabus was not mistaken. Thirdly, notice that it's not simply uh, a, a, a warning from the, uh, uh, the Spirit uh, to Paul. The Spirit was making clear that Paul would be bound in Jerusalem, which meant if he wasn't in Jerusalem, this would be a false prophecy. Over and over, he's been saying, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem. So if he didn't get there, it would be a false prophecy. Fourth, it was the people who tried to dissuade Paul from this course of action. It was not the Spirit who was trying to dissuade Paul. Now, there are some people who point to a verse, which we'll look at when we get to chapter 21, that say, no, 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 that Paul was disobeying the Spirit. The Spirit had told him not to go to Jerusalem. It's his own fault that he got into trouble. And uh, we'll deal with that at a later time. But I do not believe that that's the case. It was the Spirit who called him to... Jerusalem. Uh, fifth, Paul's ready to be bound, and if need be, he's ready to die in Jerusalem. Sixth, Luke and the others said, the will of the Lord be done. It was God's will for this tribulation to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. So, contrary to some, he was not in direct disobedience to the will of God. He was submitting to the will of God. Now, I'll comment on that passage a little bit more when we get to Acts 21, because it's a key passage in dealing uh, with uh, the whole charismatic uh, debate. But for today, I just want to point out that the constant warnings of what was going on uh, and what was going to happen when Paul got to Jerusalem uh, could, have, could have set Paul apart. Uh, what, what's happening is they're getting a partial message from the Lord. Paul's going to be bound in Jerusalem. Then they add to that, if that's the case, Paul, you shouldn't be going to Jerusalem. And here's prophets speaking to him over and over again uh, saying this. It might have been very easy to question whether he's heard from the Lord. Every one of those was a faith check. Now, I want to just briefly give you some evidence that Paul was indeed called to Jerusalem. Turn with me to Acts 19, verse 21. <clears throat> he says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, 
I must also see Rome. Now, there's two parts to that verse. First of all, what the Spirit purposed that he would go to Jerusalem. And the second, what Paul wished in addition, that he also go to Rome. In Paul's epistles, he says, I know I'm going to Jerusalem, but I hope I can also go to Rome. He didn't know that. He knows he's going to go to Jerusalem because God has given him guidance concerning that. Uh, and he's also given, by the way, inspired five inspired uh, revelations, scriptures that Paul himself has, has written, uh, written down. And uh, let me give you one example of that. Romans 15.25 But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. That's not just Paul's opinion. That is the divine inspired Word of God. This is Scripture that he has written. And if Paul failed to go to Jerusalem, then Romans would be in error. By the way, three times in Romans 15, he says, I'm going to be in Jerusalem. Three times. And so... When we get to the charismatic issues later on, uh, we're going to see the importance of these verses that we're going through here. I think that charismatics have many times misunderstood the prophecy of Agabus. Anyway, earlier, 1 Corinthians 16.3, Paul told the Corinthians, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. This is not an I hope so. This is a divine I will. And this is why Acts 20, verse 22, Paul says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. He had no choice. So whatever your views on prophecy and those types of things, which we'll look at another time, um, I, I, I think you, you've got to take these, these passages into consideration. Now for today, here's the main point I want you to get, to get from this. You will be able to count the cost if you are grounded in the will of God if you are grounded in the Scriptures. We've already quoted two sample Scriptures that said that Paul was going to go to Jerusalem. And now is prophet after prophet telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, they've heard from the Lord correctly that he's going to be bound, he's going to have trials there if he goes to Jerusalem. But then their conclusion is, in addition to the prophecy, please, we don't want to lose you, don't go. It would have been very easy for Paul to be diverted. But Paul was not because he was certain of the will of God. Absolutely certain. Now, let's translate that into modern terms. You're convinced of the truth of some doctrine, but because your relatives, your friends, and other people keep harping on you, getting on your case, and arguing with you, over time, you eventually give up the doctrine. Not because you've been convinced by the Scriptures, but because you've been worn down. You've been... In this situation, you failed a word check. Or another example, your finances are really, really tight. And you say, well, over this year, we're just not going to tithe. Well, you failed a faith check or a test that the Lord has brought into your life. Or, uh, you know, you, you click on that uh, invitation to view porn on your on your computer. And in this particular situation, uh, you know, I've just got to be investigating this out of curiosity of what other people are struggling with so I can pray for them, you know. And you failed an integrity check. And I talked to a pastor who told me he was getting a divorce and I asked him why. He's outlining the reasons for his divorce. I said, you can't get a divorce. You don't have biblical grounds. And he told me, well, God has led me to do this. And I told him the only infallible word that we have from God that is inerrant is the Bible 
any guidance, anything that you might have that contradicts the Word, if you follow that, you have failed not only an integrity check, a word check, and a faith check as well. We've got to follow the Scriptures and understand where they are. And there's a great variety of ways in which your faith in Scripture can be challenged. It could be an evolutionary teacher who's challenging your views on six-day creationism. Or maybe you're, you're giving up on the biblical method for raising your, 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 your troubled child. And you think, I'm, I'm going to send this kid to a psychologist. We've got to have a, an expert uh, take care of this child. If you are to face the cost of being a Christian successfully, you've got to be, you've got to develop a strong confidence in the Word of God. And the other thing you need to realize is God Himself allows those integrity checks and word checks and faith checks to come into your life. He's the one who's bringing these. Why? To develop your character. And so you look at these tests and these trials and you say, oh, I, I, I recognize what that is. God's bringing a word check or God's bringing an integrity check into my life and I'm going to... I'm going to pass this test that the Lord is bringing to me. It'll help you to face those uh, with joy and confidence. Okay, fourth way to be prepared is to not be naive. There are so many Christians who think that God only wills health, wealth, prosperity, and fun for the Christian, and they're devastated when bad things happen to them. They're not prepared for that. They, They start wondering, what's wrong with me? that all of these things are happening. Or sometimes, what's wrong with God that God's allowing these bad things to happen in my life? They're not prepared by point number four. Point four four says, be prepared to face hardship from God's hand. Look at verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Chains and tribulations await me. Now, the Spirit has told Paul that he has to go to Jerusalem. But the Spirit also adds, you're going to be facing chains and tribulations when you go to Jerusalem. What he's doing is he's preparing Paul's faith to suffer. Okay, He's preparing him. And so Paul's faith in God's goodness is not shaken when bad things happen to him. Right up front, when as soon as Paul is converted, God gives him both the good news and the bad news. Here's a message that God had Ananias bring to Paul when he got converted. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You know what? Paul tells us exactly the same thing. He says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, that's a lot more honest, upfront advertising than the Air Force and the Navy and the Army give when they're recruiting people, right? Uh, let me read you some of the advertising that people um, uh, see. I just picked these up off of uh, a couple of recruiter sites. Sign up today and receive $50,000 for college. Get a $20,000 signing bonus. Join the Navy and see the world. The U.S. Air Force Re- Reserve. Where else can you get paid to train with the best, travel around the world, make lifelong friends, and get an education? You can fly high in the U.S. Air Force. We're looking for a few good men. Could you be one of us? Now, those are great incentives because they're, they're saying not only financial, you know, you've got travel and college and bonuses, but you belong and you're going to be important if you join us. And some people think no one would sign up for the military if they told them all of the bad things that are going to happen to you. And I think, no, that's not actually true. People are willing to suffer and endure an enormous amount of things if they realize that the cause is right. And uh, so the movie Braveheart 
portrayed the incredible sacrifices people were willing to make in Scotland. Why? Because their cause was a cause that captivated them. It really did. There was something about the cause of liberty and justice that made our founding fathers in America say, we're willing to risk our lives and our fortunes for this. Even the honor of being associated with a great person has sometimes made people willing to you know, risk all kinds of things. This was certainly true of David's followers. They so valued his honor and they so loved him and saw the kind of valor that, Paul, uh, that David had, they were constantly willing to risk their lives for David. He was... Uh, never once did he promise them pain-free lives. He was honest with them right up front, just like Jesus was. Listen to the advertisement that Shackleton gave to the London newspaper when he was looking for a crew. Quote, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. <laughs> Honor and recognition in case of success. <laughs> and the ad was signed, Sir Ernest Shackleton, Antarctic Explorer. But you know what? Thousands of people instantly signed up and responded. He had to winnow down through those. Why? Because they considered it such an incredible honor to be able to serve uh, with Shackleton on that. They counted it a joy to make those kind of sacrifices. Well, Jesus, too, says He's promising you Small wages sometimes. But he's promising you uh, that they're gonna have, you're going to have pain. You're going to have some suffering. But that those sufferings are nothing to be compared with the eternal weight of glory. You're going to be laying up in eternity. Nothing to be compared. Now, if you know up front that you're going to face pain, you're not going to question God when that pain comes. You're just going to say, hey, this is part of the package deal. It's an essential part of counting the cost. So do not promise unbelievers everything's going to be hunky-dory. Everything's going to go great with you as soon as you become a Christian. Uh, that, that is not the thing. Don't give those kind of illusions to your own children. Promise them that the cost will be worthwhile, but promise them that there will be a cost. This is one of the major points in Hyde's book, uh, Dedication and Leadership. Don't be like the army recruiters when you talk with your children. Give them the whole story. Verse 24 illustrates the fifth point. Don't be moved by lesser things. Verse 24, Paul says, But none of these things move me. Now, they happened to him, but they didn't move him. I think we need to evaluate what are the things that are going to move us off-center. Uh, sometimes it doesn't take a lot to move us off-center. It's just a little bit of irritation from other people and their sins. Uh, maybe our pride is hurt or somebody's immaturity is just making us feel like giving up. Uh, we're moved by things that ought not to move us. Uh, sometimes it's uh, just the appetites of our body that move us. How many people, well, you don't need to raise your hands, but how many people uh, almost every morning hit the snooze button several times? What you are declaring when you do that is that you've the evening before said what time you want to get up, but the next morning... Your flesh says, don't get up, don't get up. And you're moved by lesser things. In fact, I think a snooze button is probably one of the best descriptors of our modern generation, which basically says, I don't feel like it. If you're moved more by your feelings than you are by God's will, you've got a lot of growing up to do. And if you need help on growing up, 
We can talk about that. But you've got a lot of growing up to do. Now, somebody might say, well, how do I get moved by greater things like Paul was? Let me just very quickly give you two essential steps. They're not in your outline there. But the first step is crucifixion. You have got to kill your flesh. You've got to crucify it. You've got to mortify it. And if you don't know how to do that, there's a fantastic book written by a great guy. All the old guys, you know, the Puritans. But uh, John Owen wrote The Mortification of the Flesh. Mortification is just a big word look, make you look impressive, you know, but it just means the killing of your flesh, okay? But read that book. He gives all kinds of fantastic ways in which to weaken the impulses of your flesh and make it easier and easier to walk the Christian life. That's the first essential flesh uh, step. Excuse me. Mortify your flesh. Second essential step is you've got to gain vision. You've got to be captivated by something greater that could be. And uh, you can do this by reading uh, great books by John Piper or Jerry Bridges, any of the old Puritan guys. Uh, they're, they're good. But they can cause your heart to burn and to cry out for more. They'll increase your vision of what could be. So those are the two essential points for point five. Crucify the flesh. Get inspired with a great vision of what could be. Don't be moved by lesser things. Sixth, don't love your life more than you love Christ. Verse 24 goes on to say, Nor do I count my life dear to myself. Uh, just, just with what we've gone through so far, I think you can see this does not come natural to, the, to, 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 to humans to do these things. It takes the Holy Spirit of God to be stirring up these kinds of desires within us. But you know what? The Holy Spirit many times uses means to stir those up. He uses the means of the preaching of the Word, the means of studying the Scripture and reading uh, great biographies and exhortation of one another. Now, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see that God's grace has many, many times in the past enabled feeble, frail, and timid girls and uh, boys and, and men to not love their lives as they're being beheaded and to do so with joy, with radiance of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> For those who think that the Christian life is intended to be a self-absorbed, self-serving life, I urge you, read Fox's book of martyrs. Did you know that every one of the apostles except for John was martyred for their faith? Now, talk about health and wealth and fun. No way. <laughs> no way. Give me a break. They won their race, but they were not winners in the eyes of the world. They were not. When Peter was sentenced to be crucified at Rome, he was crucified with his body upside down. It was at his request. Andrew was nailed to a tree at Edessa. He hung for two days in excruciating pain and died on the third day all the while preaching Christ to anybody who would listen. Jacob, son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword in Jerusalem by Herod. John was put into boiling oil in Jerusalem. By the way, he survived. Miraculously, he wasn't even hurt by that. was later on banished to Patmos, and then uh, he died in Ephesus. Philip was hanged from a pillar at Hierapolis. Bartholomew was burnt to death in the country of Armenia by the king there. Matthew was killed in a town in Ethiopia. Jacob, son of Alphaeus, was pushed down from the top of a temple. When he didn't die, somebody beat him to death with a club. Jude, Thaddeus, was put to death by an arrow in the town of Uruk. Simon, the zealot, was crucified in Persia. Matthias was beheaded after being stoned. Paul was beheaded 
uh, by Nero in Rome. They did not count their lives to be dear. Now, you might think, I could never be a martyr. Well, God will give you grace uh, at that time. I used to worry. Am I, what if I got tortured for my faith? Would I give in? Would I deny Christ? And my parents wisely told me, don't worry about that. He doesn't give you grace before you need the grace. He'll give you grace at the time. And one encouraging thing that I find about Paul here is that according to Romans 15, he's not looking forward to dying. Okay? He begs the Romans to pray for deliverance. He's not suicidal. He's a guy just like you or I are. But by being willing to go, he shows he loves Christ more than he loves his own life. And I love the phrase by William Wallace when people are warning him, don't go there, you might get killed. In the movie Braveheart, he says, everyone dies, not everyone really lives. I thought that was such a great expression to give perspective. We're all going to die sometime or another, but is your life going to count? Everyone dies, but not everyone really lives. There are a lot of people who have lived a safe life their whole life, and they have no idea on the incredible things that they have lost as a result. Jesus says, you cannot even be my disciple if you love your life more than you love Christ. You can't even be his disciple. Paul enjoyed living life to the full. That's not the issue. Of course he enjoyed living life but he also looked forward to heaven. And I think the key to enjoying both is in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he's saying, yeah, I love to live. I, I, you know, I'm not looking forward to suffering or dying. He lived life to the fullest, but he enjoyed heaven as well because that too was gain. And so if Christ is your supreme love, you're going to find gain in every circumstance. Okay, so there's a true winning and a true success, but it's got to be viewed through spiritual eyes. The seventh factor that helped Paul to count the cost was that he maintained a deep desire for his life to count for eternity. Now, another way of saying this is that he had developed an eternal perspective on his temporal life. Last part of verse 24. So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now that is future orientation to the max. He's not just driven by present joy. He's driven by future joy. It's something that captures. In fact, every phrase, every word in this clause is something that uh, drove Paul. The word finish implies a beginning. Okay, he began this race when Jesus knocked him off of his horse, picked him up, converted him, and sent him on his life with a commission. And he could never forget that moment of incredible mercy that God had bestowed upon him and incredible grace. It drove him in his life. The word race implies the need for endurance. The word joy points to the fact that these costs are so worthwhile. His words, the ministry which I received, where does he receive it? From Christ in heaven. It implies he's living his life not under the physical sun, the highest material thing in the world, but under Christ, under heaven. Remember in Ecclesiastes, we've seen two phrases that help you to interpret that book. The phrase under the sun and the phrase under heaven. And Solomon said, if the, if the highest thing in your life is the material universe and the sun's the highest thing, he says absolutely everything will be meaningless, vanity, it will not be worthwhile. But if you're living your life constantly under heaven, he says everything has a purpose, everything is worthwhile, and he says you can find joy in even the simplest things of life, a sunset, 
family relations, food and drink and water, things like that. If God is in none of your thoughts, you are living under the sun. Now, of course, the phrase of the gospel of the grace of God was what gave him joy because it speaks of salvation, security, Christ's riches, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. It was good news. And so what Paul was doing is he was living all of life in light of the cross, which means all of life was given an eternal perspective. And if you want your children to learn how to count the cost, you've got to reinforce over and over into their lives the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to be thinking and making decisions in light of eternity. And the last thing that helped Paul to count the cost was that he saw friendships as wonderful but temporary gifts from God's hand, not idols to be clung to. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. According to verses 36 through 38, this was a real painful parting for Paul. Uh, He didn't love people any less when he was leaving them. He loved them dearly, and you can tell that by the, 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 the kissing and the, and the hugging that was going on in verse 37. But verse 25 shows that serving Christ sometimes means you will lose the joy of some relationships. Here's what one author said. Even if Paul survived the present visit to Jerusalem, he never expected to be back in Asia Minor. There were still those untold millions, still untold in far-off places. His future plans were for Rome and Spain and the regions beyond. Now, there's many a missionary that's been criticized for leaving family and friends behind, but this is part of the cost of following God's will, is that uh, we will sometimes lose. We're going to be homesick, okay? We're going to be longing for mom's home-cooked food. But if you have the attitude that's hinted at here in verse 25, you can not only enjoy your family and enjoy your friends to the max when you have them around you, but you can also uh, be able to leave them when Christ calls you to do so. Now, here is the bottom line summary of the whole sermon. Christianity is not a bed of roses and was never intended to be a bed of roses. The health and wealth gospel will try to tell you otherwise, But you look at the speeches of Jesus. I can't think of a single speech to unbelievers where he does not in some way make them count the cost of discipleship. And he certainly makes believers count the cost of discipleship. And yet, he always showed them such joy in following him that the costs were worthwhile. So if you make Christ the pearl of great price, the Christian life will be worth the cost. When Alexander the Great uh, conquered Babylon, he gave his, disip- uh, his, his soldiers the opportunity to plunder the, uh, the palace. And in one of the rooms, a soldier found a leather bag that was filled with the crown jewels. He had no idea whatsoever of the value of those jewels. He probably just thought they were decorations or like marbles or something. But he was fascinated, taken with the intricately... Uh, laid out leather bag. He just thought this was a cool bag. He dumped out the jewels and he went around bragging to everybody about the great bag that he had discovered in there. Soft leather, beautifully laid out. And you know what? Apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, I think this is what we would do. We'd just be like that foolish soldier. We settle for leather when we could have crown jewels. Now, it's not to say that leather is not good. God delights in giving us leather, okay? It's just to say 
that we won't be able to truly count the cost in life until we understand the enormous value of the crown jewel of Jesus Christ and that it's only in Jesus that we have all things in this life and in eternity. So realize the real treasure and you will endure the, the cost with joy. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for all of those who preceded us who did count the cost of discipleship and showed to us that their life was full of glory, full of joy, full of liberty, full of freedom, that these costs were in an ultimate sense not costs at all. But Father, I pray that when we feel our flesh tugging at us so hard that it feels like great mountains and great, uh, great, great costs that we are being called to do, that by faith we would step out onto the waves even as Peter did, that we would cast aside uh, the longings of our flesh, that we would count the cost, pick up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen.